Welcome to the Doll Podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Maxwell. Stuart Holbrook, president of Verios Auction House, joins me for the third time in our series of podcasts discussing the collection of Rosalie Wilde and the award-winning museum she established in Seattle, Washington. Sadly, we lost Rosalie this year, and her friend Stuart Holbrook was entrusted to appraise and auction the collection of a lifetime. In these episodes, Stuart shares the stories of Rosalie and the dolls that became a landmark collection. Stuart, it is fitting that we are recording this podcast from my home in Vienna, Austria. As for this episode, we are going to be discussing the dolls of Austrian artist Lily Bites and how an important collection of her dolls found their way to Rosalie Wilde's museum. Born in Bad Aussee, Austria in 1874, Lily Bites trained in art schools in Florence, Munich and Vienna and established her studio in Berlin, Germany with her husband Roman in 1909. Lily Bites created beautifully costumed and sculpted dolls and figures dressed in costumes depicting the traditional Austrian dress. She also sculpted languid boudoir dolls and captured the likeness of stage and screen stars such as Mary Pickford, Ellen Terry and Lily Langtree. Lily and Roman's company were renowned for their dolls, but also for their elaborate Christmas landscapes and magical fairy tale scenes. They soon attracted the attention of major department stores throughout Europe and the USA. They also worked on projects for Metro-Golden-Mayer Studios, producing figures of stars such as Laurel and Hardy for film promotions in Europe. Stuart, you and I have met quite a few times to talk about the collection of Rosalie Weil, which just has such a range of dolls from across the globe. Stuart, tell us about the Lily Bites dolls in Rosalie Wilde's collection. Over the years in my career, I've, of course, come across Lily Bates dolls. And uh, one of the, I start off by telling people, first of all, there's a lot of, of sort of misconceptions as to a Bates doll. Because a lot of people, what they see are the dolls that were made long after she had passed away in the Bates company. And they're more like almost travel dolls, souvenir dolls and ethnic outfits. And they are not really what we're talking about here. That was sort of a an evolution of the company long after she was gone. We're talking about what you had mentioned, the early period of Lily Bates developing as an artist. And yes, I discovered her over the years, but never really did what I call a deep dive. I always thought, oh, they're lovely boudoir lady dolls, really. And it wasn't until, and I guess this is, call it the Rosalie effect, is working with Rosalie's collection allowed me a chance to go deep diving into something that I realize is one of the most amazing stories in the world of dolls. So I guess we backtrack and we start with how did Rosalie connect with Lily Bates dolls and what is the whole relationship to where she acquired one of the greatest collections, probably the greatest collection of art dolls ever produced by Lily Bates. Let me start by saying how Rosalie acquired the dolls before I tell more of the deep dive story behind how they were created. So in the 
early 2000s, Rosalie received information that there was a collection of, I believe, 88 Lily Bates dolls that were custom made in unique costumes. One group featuring ladies of theater and acting, one group featuring historic couples in historical costumes of different regions of the world, primarily Europe. And then a third, which was really fascinating, children through history. And so children through different time areas and what they would wear during that period. Wow. And so Rosalie came to receive a phone call that there was this entire collection of them. And it was from the former curator of the Trofhagen Museum. Ethel Trofhagen was a, a legendary uh, fashion designer in New York in the early to mid to late 1900s. She had actually developed one of the most famous fashion schools there. And within that fashion school called the Trifagan Fashion School, she had a museum. And the curator of that museum, when it closed down, was so in love with these dolls, thought they were such an incredible work of art in their entirety, that she bought them. I've never heard of a curator buying the items from a museum. Very unusual. She bought the whole collection because she was horrified to think of them, you know, not residing with her and and being split apart. In this case, clearly it was a pipe dream. It's not a reality. You know, you 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 can't keep together necessarily 88 pieces of like this. When she was ready to sell them some 18 years later after having them in her home, she contacted Rosalie through another person to see if she would be interested in purchasing them as an entire collection for the museum. Rosalie immediately jumped on it, especially when she heard the story. So what was the story? Mm -hmm. Well, we'll talk a little bit about Lily Bates and her life as we go through, but as best as we can figure out, in the 1920s, Lily Bates had come back to, late 1920s, come back to Austria from Berlin. And in that time, she began to work with the, the, the Werkstatter studio in Salzburg. What we know is that during the 20s, late, mid to late 20s, up until 1932, Lily had worked to create these dolls. She was actually sculpting the faces, and then the costumes were her designs, and made over probably six, seven, eight-year period, which is when... This is where it gets so fascinating. An American art dealer from New York named Hofheimer, who I can find no information on anywhere in the world today on the internet, which is incredible. How does a person just vanish from the internet? Um, nothing on him, his life, his history. He went to Salzburg and he was at the Werkstatt and he saw these dolls and he absolutely fell in love with them so much that he made an offer to buy the entire collection. And he brought it to the United States, not only to have, he didn't want it necessarily for himself. He believed that these were such works of art, so unique. He wanted to mount a traveling exhibit around America and did. And so the dolls themselves have the essence of a lot of her boudoir dolls, that essence of the face. But what is remarkable about this that I, I, I can't imagine the amount of work she must have gone through with each one is that for the actresses, as an example, the ladies of the theater, um, which you have people like Sarah Bernhardt, 
each one is done individually and looks exactly like her. And these were part of this collection? Part of this collection. So she had to have, it wasn't like she was just taking sort of her stock boudoir doll and dressing it in a costume that was traditional of that actress or that particular regional couple. They were actually, she was doing each doll uniquely sculpted with a framework, but uniquely sculpted to look like that person. So every doll face is different. And this is this is an incredible undertaking that she must have been through. And, and in the same process, during the time her husband died, I believe Roman Bates, I believe, died in 1930. Um, yes. would have been fairly young. Yes, he, he did. He even died, and she continued on. We know 1932 was when she produced the last one, um, because one of the final ones she made was a children. So they, they had children through history is a pair of children. It says, the children of today, 1932. And that was the last sort of thing that we can document that was produced. And then this gentleman, Hofheimer from New York, found these dolls in Salzburg soon after, bought the entire collection, had it brought to America, traveled it around. He had exhibits in Milwaukee, I believe, Chicago, Brooklyn, New York, and it was after a few of these exhibits around the country that Ethel Trafagen, of the fashion designer who had the fashion school, saw them and offered to buy them because she believed they were an incredible addition to the fashion school for educational purposes because the outfits were so remarkably done and showed evolution of fashion over a period of time. She bought the entire collection where they remained in the Trafagen school for years and were used in educational moments. They were on exhibit for students. They even did annual books of fashion where they would use these dolls to show different periods of of costuming. And they remained until the school went bankrupt, which I believe was in the 80s, and went to this curator, then to Rosalie, and now they're coming up for auction. And it is a remarkable thing to find this set like this. We will start in part one with having just the ladies of theater. And then in part two, we will have the couples of history and the children. So this January, people will be able to see the ladies of the theater and their incredible work. What is so, you brought up a lot, and now I guess that will lead us in the conversation and how I sort of got led into the world of Lily Bates, because I never really knew a whole lot about her before. There was information, but there really isn't much, especially in the American market. There's very few articles ever written on her, not a lot about her life and who this lady was. So I became fascinated because I was like, who would do this? Who would make each one-of-a-kind doll like this, put so much work into it? Who had a company? Who had fame? Who was this Lady Lily Bates? So I started reading about her and, like you, discovered probably the most remarkable Austrian artist that we will have in our history of dolls. Not only just a doll maker, but somebody that you you mentioned had been contracted by numerous department stores around the world. Even Kaufman's in Pittsburgh. The Kaufman family was uh, the famous, very wealthy family in Pittsburgh that uh, actually uh, had Frank Lloyd Wright build Falling Waters, the famous house. And uh, they contracted her to do designs for the department store as well. 
though we, you and I both agree we can't find any information documenting that she actually traveled to the United States. Yeah. Yeah. That she ever actually came. I don't I don't think she traveled. But to she United did a lot States, of work. According for to what I've read in, in the German sources. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more because we have to go into literally visit museum archives here in Austria. Right, right. If you and I are gonna discover more. Right. Because this is a, an incredible story. It's a, a story of an artist. It's a story of an artist at a very interesting time because mm. If we, we were discussing this earlier, if we think of the early 20th century, we have Ketty Kruse mm -hmm. in Germany. We have Madame Rose Alexander. Rose O'Neill. In, in, this was a great conversation we were having. And, yeah. um, and I think it's a great conversation. We should almost have it over again right now so people can hear it. Because yeah. it's extraordinary it the is. amount of wonderful dolls that were coming out and the originality. Women were disrupting yes. the old boy network of doll making yes. in that 19, let's call it 1900 to really surging in the 1920s. And you saw it with Rose O'Neill. You saw it with Lily Bates, Madame Alexander, you said. But how about all the German companies that suddenly started hiring American artists who were primarily women to create their new designs? Grace Starry Putnam, Grace Corey Rockwell, Helen Jensen. Uh, there's there's a number of them, all American women. So there was this And if unique... we go to Italy in 1919, Elena Scavini establishes Lenci. The Lenci Company. Yes. Women were, it was, this was in a grand period where also women in America gained the ability to vote. And Europe too. And we saw almost a liberation of women to the point that they began to really take over doll making. They were a creative force in, in doll making. It's a worldwide mm. movement in the arts right. that we see happening. And, you know, it documents across the board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a very interesting comparison between Kitty Kruse and Lily Beitz, and mm -hmm. that is that when Lily, as an artist, came to the attention of a, I think it was a wine oh, company. Oh, I love this story, yes. And he said, oh, I really love your work. And he wanted her to make one of these scenes. And he said, can you do something? I think it was a centerpiece. Yeah, it was an Austrian theme to do with his promoting yeah. his right, company. Right, And she carved the dolls. I wish we could see a picture of this. She carved the dolls out of potatoes, their heads. Yes. And this is, of course, the story of also Katie Cruz. Mm -hmm. When her husband said, Max Cruz said, well, if you cannot find a cuddly doll in Berlin that, you know, fills the requirement of something cuddly and the weight of a baby. Mm -hmm. And she used a potato for the right. doll's right. head to create right. the weight so that her child could cuddle and feel a baby that mm -hmm. wasn't uh, as static mm -hmm. as a composition with a biscuit. And this is extraordinary that women mm -hmm. are getting out there innovating mm -hmm. with, you potatoes. know, <laughs> potatoes. <laughs> I think I think we're all going to be, uh, <laughs> I think the humble potato in the in the larder may have more going for there it. There should be competitions now in the world of dolls of of. There should be an annual potato doll making competition. To we see. should we should throw we, down agree, the yeah, challenge to, to honor the Lily UFTC. Bates and Kathy Cruz that, yeah. that that everybody has to make a potato doll. See who comes up with the most creative and unique potato you know, doll. I don't even know how you would start 
to do something like that. Well, there was Mr. Potato Head, so... Yeah, but he was plastic. (laughs) Yeah, well, true, true. Yeah, he was plastic. But, you know, Lily Bates was more than just a doll maker, more than just a doll company owner. She was a visionary, an artist. And she kind of led us into that boudoir period of the dolls and created that whole look and genre that was very prominent in the 1920s. I think her story is a fabulous one. It becomes one of the most tragic as well. But I think a story that is important for, again, remembering and understanding that period in time and what happened in Europe. To never forget that some of the most genius, greatest, loving, beautiful people who gave us so much in the world of arts were taken away from us by hate. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end well for Lily Bates. In the early 40s, she had returned after her husband died in the 1930s. She'd returned to Austria and then eventually settled in uh, a little spa town called Bad Aussie. I haven't been there, but I'm looking forward to going there soon. And maybe we need to take a road trip together, Louise. At a, we should go. Yeah. We should and, go. And there's, there's archives there. Yeah. And um, went back to her little town of Bad Aussie where she grew up and her father had uh, health clinics there. When He had sanatoriums. Sanatoriums, right. Yeah. And so she went back to this town, but only to one day receive in the mail the letter that because she was Jewish, of Jewish descent, she was being deported. And we know what, at that point, everyone knew what the deportation meant. Stripped of all of her items, objects, everything she'd built in her life would be taken away. And I think this says a lot to Lily Bates's character. I think people can argue, what was, should she have tried to survive? Should she have, you know, made her best attempt But Lily Bates, I guess we can kind of understand a little bit more to the pride she had of character and the unwillingness to succumb to other people's demands as to um, how she should live her life. In that the day she received that letter, she called a very close friend who was a doctor in town and he assisted her in taking her own life that evening rather than the next day being taken away by the Nazi party. I suppose she must have wanted to choose. It's a choice that I'm sure is controversial, but um, I tend to be of the nature of survivor, but I guess I could see, I can understand that she had... She was 68. She was 68. And and if you... Alone. And so it's, we've got to realize the reality of mm-hmm. this and that it was she, courageous what she did well whatever way we think mm-hmm. about it she decided what she decided mm-hmm. and you know she was in switzerland with her sister prior to that she could have stayed in switzerland I know. but she i made, read that i read that yeah. part too that her, her sister begged her yes to stay in switzerland and she said no i want to return home yes and yes and so, and this was her history, and this was her family, and I think this was the thing that was being denied. This was the idea was to strip people of mm-hmm. their identity, mm-hmm. of their possessions, being stripped of art, mm-hmm. uh, and as an artist, it, it, there's a lot of conversation about 
how art was was stripped away from so many of these families. But this is a case where I think we sometimes all forget of the great artists that were taken away from us too. Yes. And so not only the pieces that others created in the past, but the artists who were creating for now and in the future were taken from us by hate. And um, imagine, I, I, I wondered since I've done this deep diving into Lily Bates's life and, and learning more about her genius and, and the tragedy in this, I wonder what would Lily have done if she had lived? What could she have created? Yeah. And I wonder, did she ever really get to see the prominence she would get with that collection of dolls that she made? that became known as the Trafhagen Lily Bates dolls, would she ever really know that they would become an integral part of a museum and she would get accolades for creating some of the most unique dolls in the world? And, and then you think about today, how Rosalie featured these dolls in the museum and gave her credit and did lectures and articles about Lily Bates as well. And now they will come to auction and we'll see a whole new generation. I think this is Lily Bates's moment. It, It comes far too late and long after she passed away, but I believe it's a time long overdue and we've reached the the year of Lily Bates and Lily Bates's moment. And it couldn't come at a better time when we all need to take a breath and take a moment to reflect on beautiful lives that are taken away and giving her the respect and the adoration of what she gave to the world of dolls. I think it's a time, as you said, to reflect on peace. But one of the things we also speak about a lot in the podcast is the way that dolls bring people together. These dolls brought Lily Bites' work accolades from all over the world. Her dolls communicated a story about Austria, a story about craft, and a story about women and art. I also like to think about Lily's work influencing fashion students at the Traphagen School. And I think Lily Bites would have really liked that. I do too. I really do think she would have liked that because after all fashion, she created those dolls. So fashion was a big part of her life. I don't think she ever really thought, I, I can't speak for Lily Bates now. We can only just speculate. But I can't believe she ever really thought of herself as a doll maker necessarily. I think she saw herself as an artist. And I think that's how we need to begin looking at these dolls as well. And especially this this group of dolls from the Trafhagen Museum and Rosalie Wiles Museum, that she is placed on a new level of one of the greatest doll artists in history. Certainly Austrian, for sure. She really does bridge a gap between sculpture Mm -hmm. and doll making. Mm -hmm. Because to me, I look at the beautiful dolls, which I did a lot of research on for this discussion, and they remind me of like Clarice Cliff. Mm -hmm. They remind me of the beautiful Hollywood silent film stars, Mary Pickford Mm -hmm. or the Gish sisters, Mm -hmm. Dorothy Gish and Lillian Gish Gish, of the time. If the listeners think of the soft-focused images of the stars of silent film, Mm -hmm. those silent stars spoke a universal language of drama and beauty. And Lily Bites captured that. But I believe they are very much uh, sculptures of their time. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful that they've come together as a group, that they're going to be documented as a group, 
that Rosalie did this. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have to always come back to Rosalie Weil and the mm-hmm. way she has preserved these wonderful stories for future generations. It was courageous what she did. Um, she made the investment, and it was not an easy investment to get all of these pieces. What could have happened? I mean, you have to also give... It's interesting. There's like a, a the story really starts with Lily Bates, but goes to this art dealer, Hoffmeyer, then to Ethel Trafagan, then to the curator. I believe her name was Spencer, who when the museum closed, had the sense to buy them all. And then to Rosalie, all these lives intersected over time to keep these pieces alive. Yes. Anywhere along that chain could have been the moment that they were put down into a basement somewhere, in some warehouse, forgotten, and eventually thrown away. Oh, they're just a bunch of some dolls in these little black boxes. And they could have been lost. But fate kept it together all the way through. Fate kept these pieces moving through time, through collectors who preserved them to where we are now. And that is what I believe, as I said earlier, Lily Bates's moment. Stuart Holbrook, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Story of a wonderful artist mm-hmm. and also, again, of Rosalie Weil, who continues to reach out and touch us with these stories. Beautifully said, indeed. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart, for joining us on The Doll Podcast. And I'm sure you'll join me in a hearty Auf Wiedersehen to all our listeners. We'll have lots of links to images and to stories about Rosalie Weil on our website, www.dollpodcast.com.